Welcome listeners. I'm Brenda Siepley, the host and founder of Yoga Discovery from Green Tree Yoga of PA. Thank you, as always, for joining the Yoga Discovery podcast. For those of you who may be new to this podcast, Yoga Discovery is geared towards students who often hear unfamiliar words or concepts in yoga class where there might not be time to delve into their deeper meaning. Today's Yoga Discovery podcast, like the episode regarding yoga's intersection with Buddhism and the episode that examined the nature of the guru in yoga, requires an episode that strays from the shorter episodes of Yoga Discovery that serve the purpose of introducing yoga subjects to students. Why? Because lifting the veil on the subject of Tantra is nearly impossible to do in a shorter format. Tantra's history, as I will explain, is vast, confusing, at times contradictory, and frankly, somewhat confounding. However, you've joined Yoga Discovery because you have a curiosity about yoga that goes well beyond the asanas of a modern yoga practice. Tantra practices have evolved, just like yoga, and the many elements of tantric practices are often found within your yoga practice, which may be surprising for some of you. If you're a returning listener, you know that I like to start with historical context. After all, everything that you hear, see, or do in yoga has an original source that often reaches into past millennia. If you're new to the history of yoga, I recommend that you first listen to the Yoga Discovery podcast, The Condensed Origins of Yoga. In today's episode on Tantra, I'll be using terms that have a historical basis, so it's helpful if you're familiar with those terms. Ready? Let's dive in. We can't say for certain when Tantra began, and we know very little about its launching point. Remember, if you're a regular listener of Yoga Discovery, you know that the early history of India is based upon an oral tradition that was dependent upon precise verbal transmission of knowledge. Why? Well, early writing that was on palm and banana leaves didn't survive the harsh climate of India or the ants and other insects who loved to eat the leaves. Much of what we know about Tantra has only come to light in the last three decades as scholars working in collaboration across many academic disciplines and universities have the means and tools to access and translate manuscripts that have survived. Because the original source manuscripts did not survive, the physical manuscripts from centuries later are copies from copies from copies that were copied by scribes. For this reason, and certainly prior to the 5th century CE, wisdom was committed to memory across philosophies and religions, and this is certainly true of tantric texts. Scholars generally agree that Tantra first appeared in the Himalayan area of northern India. Tantra refers to the texts that are associated with and have been revealed by a deity, whether a god or goddess. The oldest tantric texts date to the 5th century CE, the Common Era, although the teachings are believed to have originated after the 1st century CE. In the West, Tantra is often translated as loom or weave, although these descriptive words are not found in the ancient source texts. The verbal root tan means to propagate or expand upon, and tra means to save or protect. The majority of tantric texts were written in Sanskrit. When we speak of classical tantra today, 
we are usually referring to the spiritual practice that arose from the sacred source texts. If we are to identify a timeline that Tantra is at its peak in India, we would point to the 8th to 14th centuries, the Middle Ages of the Common Era. Although, as you shall see, Tantra is still practiced today around the world. For those of you who have been following the podcast, you'll recall that the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali date to approximately the 5th century CE. When I'm speaking about Tantra, my focus will be upon the classical period of Tantra from the 8th to the 14th centuries. Much of our knowledge about Tantra is derived from the work of Abhinavagupta, who was something of a Renaissance man in India from the 10th century of the Common Era, which, of course, is clearly <laughs> prior to the Renaissance of Europe. I use the reference to get the point across that Abhinavagupta was a widely knowledgeable tantric guru who profoundly impacted the understanding and practices of Tantra through careful scholarly study. If you want to take a deeper dive into classical Tantra, place Abhinavagupta's scholarship and manuscripts at the top of your primary source materials. For context about the time period that's classical Tantra, let's take a moment and remind ourselves about some aspects of the yoga world prior to the 5th century CE. The spiritual foundation of yoga is first found in the Vedas, which are the most important sacred texts that form the foundation of Hinduism that, like the Tantras, were considered to be divinely revealed. The Vedas contain the roots for what was to become Tantric practices, although, interestingly, nothing in the Vedas is purely Tantric. The wisdom and rituals of the Vedas were controlled and maintained by priests known as Brahmins. The Vedas were largely inaccessible to everyone else. Brahmanical tradition was patriarchal and exclusive, which is important to keep in mind when we discuss the societal roots of tantric practices. Searching for answers regarding the teachings of the Vedas and fueled by strict Brahmanical rigidity, non-Orthodox monks rejected Brahmanical control and became renunciates, ascetics who chose a path of discovery and contemplation that was outside of the societal control of the Brahmins. Some scholars believe that tantric practices arose from the Shramana movement, the wandering renouncers who rejected strict Brahminical authority that was found throughout India, who in many ways were the counterculture of their time period. Tantra texts that contain tantric philosophy and traditions then are a reaction to the Vedas and are born out of a desire to transcend beyond the teaching of the Vedas. Tantra doesn't reject the Vedas. Rather, Tantra is framed in a belief system that the Vedas are not the authority and can only take the practitioner so far. Tantric wisdom is considered, like the Vedas, to be revelatory by their followers, who are known as tantrikas. The knowledge of the Tantras was revealed by a deity, such as Shiva or a goddess. The appeal of Tantra, and I will get more specific as to what actually constitutes Tantra, is that Tantra practices provided a powerful path to liberation that was attained far more quickly than through following the path as outlined in the Vedas. And, critically relevant, Tantric practices were not limited to the Brahmins. In fact, the wisdom and practices were largely available to householders. And because this path was open to any caste within society, including to some degree women, 
you can perhaps start to see the appeal. Tantra spread throughout Asia via the Silk Road and became so widespread that by the 11th century of the Common Era, nearly all of what is considered Hinduism had been influenced to some degree by Tantra. In addition, Tantra contributes significantly to Buddhism and Shaivism, Vaishnavism, and to a lesser degree, Jainism. And Tantra greatly impacted the evolution of Hatha Yoga. Here's a tantalizing tidbit of trivia for you. You may be surprised that Hatha translates to forceful and is a term that is first seen in a Buddhist tantric text. Isn't that amazing? Especially when you consider that today, Hatha Yoga is often delivered as more of a gentle form of yoga. And the first explanation of Hatha Yoga is found in the 11th century Kala Chakra Tantra as forcing energy inwards and upwards. So, what is Tantra? Okay, here's a disclaimer. For those students who like definitions that are clear and precise and fit into neat little packages tied with a bow, you need to prepare yourself. There is no one single definition that everyone agrees upon. The definitions are very diverse, just like tantric philosophy and practice, and interpretations vary tremendously. This is especially true when you see that new texts are literally being translated every day by scholars. And this is problematic as definitions of word meanings in and of themselves differ among traditions. So in one tradition, a word is defined one way. In another tradition, that same word has very different connotations. For an example of how words can muddy our understanding, look at the word Hinduism, which didn't emerge until the 19th century as a word used by the British who had colonized India. The word Hindu was the name first given to the people who lived on the other side of the Indus River by the Persians in the 6th century CE. This means that for many centuries, the people who practiced what is now labeled as some form of Hinduism didn't call it Hinduism. See, words and definitions can be tricky. And as you'll hear me repeat quite often in Yoga Discovery, context is very important. And now back to Tantra, for which there are a variety of interpretations. But Tantra does have commonalities, and that's what I'll focus on. Tantra practices arise out of a cosmology of karma, the cyclical belief that we are born, we live, we die, and are reborn again into a being. And who or what that being is directly correlates to our actions in our previous lifetime. Ultimately, Tantric practices were motivated by a desire to destroy the karmic obstacles that get in the way of becoming liberated from the karmic cycle, as opposed to living countless lives filled with suffering over and over again. And yes, this cosmology of karma mirrors many of the religions and practices that arose out of India. Tantra, though, sought to quicken the pace of spiritual development that speedily overcame the obstacles on a sort of fast track to liberation or the attainment of power in some form. Unlike other practices that often focus on the suppression of the desires and pleasures of the physical body, pleasurable experiences are cultivated in Tantra and often serve as a, a source of transformation. And there's a keen aspiration to understand how desire shapes the mind in this regard. This transformation serves as a kind of a, a vehicle that 
and suffering through a direct relationship with the deity and relies on an understanding that everything in the universe is interconnected, that the divine is within each of us and we are all part of the consciousness of the universe. Tantric practices teach us to channel our desires into a positive and productive outcome that connects us to the divine as opposed to a more selfish and self-centered outcome. I'm broad stroking this, but tantric practices are often viewed as much more powerful than the knowledge in the Vedas for this reason. Before getting into specifics of tantric practices, we need to look at classical tantra so that we can have a greater understanding of how tantra evolved into the neo-tantra that you may encounter in the modern West. As I mentioned earlier, the tantras are believed to have been revealed by a deity. Again, broad stroking here, classical tantric practices included meditation and mantras, mandalas, mudras, initiations, and rituals for which the goal was to channel energy, known as shakti, through direct experience with a deity that sought to accelerate the attainment of spiritual goals and the highest level of consciousness. And unlike the Brahmanical traditions that were associated with the Vedas, tantric spiritual practices, again, were open to almost everyone who was deemed worthy enough to be initiated into a tantric cult. The limits of the caste system did not apply. Some tantric lineages permitted the initiation of women, which contrasted the limited access to Vedic teachings as maintained by the Brahmins. Okay, time to pause. In our modern world, the word cult often creates an instant reaction, and usually the reaction is negative. Yep, another opportunity to point out the context matters. The word cult has a few interpretations, not all of which are negative. If you're a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you may remember that followers who act out various aspects of the film each time as it's played in theaters across the country these many, many years, are often referred to as belonging to the cult of Rocky Horror. Deadheads, the followers of the band The Grateful Dead, are also a pop culture cult. All religions and spiritual practices can be part of a cult. Words evolve, and in our modern world, the term cult, when referring to a spiritual group, usually takes on a disparaging and derogatory meaning. Sometimes I agree that doing so is very much warranted, but looking at Merriam-Webster's definition, the word is additionally defined as a great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, or a system of religious beliefs and rituals, or formal religious venerations, i.e. worship, or finally as a system for the cure of disease based on dogma set forth by its promulgator. Huh. One of Tantra's key requirements was initiation into the secretive cult of Tantric practice, which was critical because initiation provided access to Tantra's textual knowledge and the wisdom of the guru, who was the interpreter of the texts. Initiates became part of a kula, or spiritual community. An individual's readiness for diksha, which is the Sanskrit word for initiation, was determined by the guru. 
The guru was the lineage holder who was responsible for maintaining the tantric teachings and ritual practices while passing the knowledge precisely as the guru received it to the next guru. The teachings of Tantra were secretive because tantric rituals directly contrasted many of the teachings and practices of the Brahmins and were in marked contrast to social norms of various communities in India. Ultimately, initiation provided a doorway that could lead the participant to liberation in their lifetime, known as Jivanmukti, which as you may imagine had tremendous appeal. Jivan Mukti is liberation while living and with the ability to move about in the world while in a liberated state. But there were some practitioners who weren't as interested in the fast track to liberation and were drawn to other, shall we say, um, benefits or perks. In the classical period of Tantra, there were essentially two types of Tantric practitioners. Understanding this is important as we also look at how Tantra is perceived in the modern West and how the definition of modern Tantra looks remarkably different from classical Tantra, which then gives rise to important questions related to whether or not modern Tantric practices are authentically Tantric. So sit tight. More on this in a few moments. Shaivism was the dominant religion in India after the 5th century of the Common Era and throughout the Middle Ages. The scriptural foundation of Shaivism is the Tantras. While there are certainly other religions, as I mentioned and want to emphasize, that placed great importance upon the wisdom of the Tantras, such as Buddhism, for the sake and length of this podcast, I'll focus on Tantric Shaivism because the majority of Sanskrit Tantric texts that have existed are Shaiva. There were two branches of Shaivism, the Atamarga and the Mantra Marga. Atamarga translates to outer path and the teachings were only accessible to male ascetics. The Atamarga was a very closed Gnostic pathway and the focus was fully on salvation. Mantra Marga or path of the mantras was accessible to both ascetics and married householders from all castes of society, and in some instances, included females. This is a vast and tremendous difference from the Atamarga and highly restricted Brahmanical world. Let's say that you were in India and born into a lower Varnas or caste, and you were a woman. Much of the inner workings of your community were unavailable to you simply because of your gender. Equality across all social classes did not exist for the majority of the population in India. Now imagine one of the basic appeals to initiation into the Mantra Marga. You didn't have to be a, a renunciate to be initiated. Social constructs are broken down, and the wisdom of the teachings were made available to initiates. Another defining and major difference between Atamarga and Mantra Marga was that Mantra Marga provided two pathways. The first was, again, the fast track to spiritual liberation. The second pathway provided access to supernatural powers known as cities and practices that focused on experiencing the pleasures of the world in many formats. Now to consider the two types of practitioners of Shaivism. 
The fast track practitioner's goal was to achieve Jiva Mukti, which is liberation in the present lifetime. In other words, any karma or negative actions that doomed you to repeating lifetimes over and over until you build up a storehouse of good karma to reach moksha or liberation went away. Poof, erased, no longer an obstacle. The second pathway served to develop supernatural powers or cities. Because the rituals were secretive and often were in direct opposition to society's norms, the rituals were held in secret places, such as cremation grounds or an abandoned house. What kind of supernatural powers, you ask? Well, sit tight, I'll get to that. So what happens on these pathways of differing goals? In addition to initiation, rituals take center stage in Tantra as the cosmic belief systems of the practitioner are directly linked to highly structured rituals. The goal was to control the cosmic order. Both pathways hold that Shakti is the energy that is manifested in the universe, and this energy can be directed either for liberation or for achieving worldly goals. In Tantra, there is no good or bad. It's all just Shakti. The Tantrika seeks to awaken and harness the power of Shakti through rituals, thereby controlling the outcome to meet the specific need of the practitioner. The physical body in Tantra is to be considered divine and a manifestation of the goddess rather than a vessel of sin. So Tantric practices become body-centric. This is another critical aspect of Tantra practices that separates Tantra to a larger degree from other non-Tantric spiritual or religious practices. To experience union with the divine, there is an emphasis on the incorporation of practices that invoke the subtle body, which brings us to yoga. We've arrived. When we think of yoga in the context of the tantras, it is critical to remind ourselves, as you've learned from previous yoga discovery podcasts, that modern postural yoga looked quite different when compared to yoga practices prior to the 19th century. Asana, or the physical postures of yoga as taking center stage, is very recent in the historical timeline. Yoga in classical Tantra is one of the primary supports, if you will, or mechanisms that, when combined with mantras and mudras and mandalas and ritual practices, helps the practitioner to achieve liberation or gain supernatural powers. By the 5th century CE, Patanjali had composed the Yoga Sutras, which laid out an eight-limbed system, or Ashtanga. While the eight-limbed system is also found in Tantric traditions with variation, so too is a six-limbed system, which is the most common hierarchy in Tantra. Are you curious as to which of the limbs from the Yoga Sutras is not included in the six-limbed practice? Well, don't worry. Nothing is sacrificed in the six-limbed system. The first two sutras of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are the Yamas and Niyamas, or the observances and restraints, and they become inherent in the Tantric tradition, resulting in six limbs. Think of it as uh, avoiding redundancy. If you didn't embrace the Yamas and Niyamas in Tantra, you risked being expelled from the Tantric community. Asana throughout these limbed systems is not at the forefront of these practices or traditions. Rather, 
Asana serves as a support on the pathway to reaching a specific goal. And asanas, at least through the first millennium, are largely seated postures that prepare the body for meditation and pranayama and other energy-focused practices of tantra. Also in the Yoga Sutras, the final anga or limb is samadhi, which is the goal of the eight-limbed system. In tantra, samadhi, like all of the other angas, is another auxiliary to get you to liberation. As I move through an explanation of the rituals whose words you're probably familiar with, you might want to contemplate how your understanding or use of these practices in yoga compare with tantric practices. I assure you, it's very interesting. Highlighting again that there isn't a single definition or practice of tantra. This means that the goals of tantric practices vary among tantric traditions. Each darshana or philosophy had differing perspectives, and so you might want to think of it this way. If your religious foundations arise from, let's say, uh, an Abrahamic tradition, you surely understand that there are many, many interpretations of what is contained in the Bible, which is why there is such a variety of branches within Abrahamic traditions. Tantra is the same way, but admittedly, with even greater variety and an absence of a clear definition. This podcast is providing a basic introduction to Tantra. I'm just lifting the veil just a bit. So, as a yoga student, you may have heard of or practiced Kundalini Yoga. The word Kundalini is first mentioned in the Vedas and evolved into a more specific and vital practice within the Tantric period of the Middle Ages. Kundalini derives from the Sanskrit word kundala, which means to coil, and is most commonly interpreted as a coiled serpent. This serpent represents dormant primordial energy, or shakti, as I mentioned earlier, and is contained in each of us. It is located in close proximity to the base of our spines. The subtle body becomes much more refined in the tantric traditions, because tantrikas believed that yoga, such as the yoga of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, could only take you so far on your path to liberation. The tantric body contains a highway or network, if you will, known as nadis that transport energy through specific points that you will recognize as chakras. The word chakra means wheel, and chakras located along the spinal axes are where pranic energy channels intersect along these nadis. The number of chakras varies in traditions throughout history. And do you remember Abhinavagupta, the tantric and spiritual guru that I mentioned earlier? He describes five chakras in his writings. In the West, you're most likely to encounter mention or study of the seven chakras in a yoga class. In the 10th century, the chakra system in Tantra is refined most commonly to the seven that we uh, associate with yoga today. Chakras often serve as the focus of meditation, and you can think of them as touch points for a journey of energy in the mind and body that leads to harmony and spiritual wisdom. Kundalini Shakti, again the dormant energy, can be awakened through practices such as yoga. What sort of yoga? Well, through pranayama or breath work and the incorporation of mantras, mudras, and mandalas, the kundalini shakti can be directed up the central channel of our subtle body, which runs from the pelvic floor up 
through the eyebrow center. In Sanskrit, this central channel is the sushumna. Our chakras are each connected to the sushumna, and with long and intense practice, Kundalini Shakti is directed higher and higher up the sushumna through the chakras. What's the primary purpose? The goal of Kundalini is for the individual conscious to become one with divine conscious, thereby reaching liberation or moksha. Now for the nuts and bolts of Tantra. Mantras are critical to Tantric practices. Mantras in Tantra are in the sacred language of Sanskrit, which is a language that was believed to be divinely revealed. This means that each sound of Sanskrit utterance is inherently divine and therefore must be very specific because the power of mantras is in the exact pronunciation of each sound. So, mantras are imbued with power, and when spoken, they are used to purify the body, which, as I've said, is divine, and when combined with other ritualistic practices, worldly success and spiritual liberation can be obtained. Mantras work to eradicate impurities that lead to the karmic cycle of rebirth. Through mantra repetition, the mind opens to a heightened awareness and perception. While repeating the mantra, the practitioner visualizes the deity and the rising of the kundalini shakti up the sushumna and through the chakras. Mantras in Tantra are secretive in nature and highly protected due to their potential to do great harm. In the mantra marga, remember the path of mantras, the sound of the mantra takes on the phonic form of deities. As I continue to explain the nuts and bolts of Tantra, begin to, in your mind, imagine each element brought together in the highly ritualized world of Tantra. On to mandalas. You've seen them. Those beautiful geometric patterns tattooed on yoga bodies or on jewelry or serving as decorative art. When mandalas are used in Tantric practices, each aspect or detail has a specific meaning and are critical to the aspect of the ritual. The images within mandalas are divine and inspire awe and devotion while providing support for worship, offering to deities and meditation. When combined with mantras and mudras, deities are invoked and invited into the ritual or are controlled in some way. Often the practitioner's goal is to become one or to merge with the deity or to exist with the deity. Mudras. The word mudra translates to seal and is a meaningful and deliberate gesture that moves well beyond mere symbolism, which is how mudras are commonly seen in our modern practice. The mudra's purpose in tantric ritual was for an effect or outcome, and when paired with mandalas, mantras, and other offerings, the practitioner became more unified with the deity that they were trying to invoke. So what about those supernatural powers that I mentioned? Ah, well, alchemy does have a role in tantric practices. Certain aspects such as mantras, mudras, and the manipulation of elements and herbs to create elixirs could raise desirable powers. The outcome could be liberation or worldly gain. When the modern world hears the word Tantra, the mind often relates Tantra to sexual practices and rites. And yes, 
in classical Shaiva Tantra, this would be an accurate relationship. In Shaiva Tantra, if the sexual activity is tied to a spiritual practice with the goal of liberation, then it's Tantra. Why? Well, because in Tantra, the fluids that are associated with sexual activity are imbued with power. Individual identities of the practitioners lose importance, and sexual practices were in a controlled, ritualistic environment. These, again, were highly secretive rituals and were practiced by the tantrika who was deeply entrenched and initiated and who had acquired a highly advanced skill set and knowledge to lead the sexual rite. It would be very wrong to say that everyone who was initiated into tantra was practicing wild sexual deviation. That is simply a fallacy. Place an asterisk next to the following statement, as I'll refer back to it when I discuss tantra in our modern world. If the objectives of the sexual activity is only for pleasure, then it's just sex and not tantra. And so let's clear up another fallacy regarding the book known as the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra, with its many images of sexual positions, is not tantra. In summation, classical tantra is from the 8th to the 14th century, and unlike the eight-limb system of Patanjali as described in the Yoga Sutras, tantra practices believed that the eight limbs could only carry you to a certain point. In tantra, the practitioner learned to fully experience the liberating power of immersion into our primordial and human nature while exploring all that the senses had to offer. This is very different from traditions that predated tantric practices in which there was an emphasis on withdrawing from the senses and renouncing much of what the world offered. In Tantra, the rituals teach the practitioner to have a full relationship and understanding of sensory stimulation and perception through practices that heighten discernment. By expanding our perceptions, the practitioner experiences reality in a much deeper manner that eliminates ignorance or avidya while developing a very close relationship with a deity. Are there pitfalls with tantric practices? Well, of course. And before I address these pitfalls, I'll turn to neo-tantra and tantra in the modern era. Neo-tantra often looks quite different from the tantric practices of the Middle Ages. At its core, Neo-Tantra explores sexual repression or sexual mysticism and is not often connected via a direct line to a revealed and embodied scriptural lineage or practice as I've described before. Rather, the word Tantra is something of a buzzword with mixed definitions and connotations. In the West, Tantric practices are often misleading and arise from these varied and often completely false or uninformed definitions. And how, you might wonder, has this happened? Well, tantric sources, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, are largely not translated into English or even publicized. While I'm delighted to report that this is changing as more and more Sanskrit scholars are translating tantric manuscripts and publicizing their work, well, <laughs> problems have arisen. What this has meant is that outside the world of academic scholars, the average person without this informed knowledge incorrectly interprets Tantra in such a way that fits their own goals and needs. The outcome is that Tantric practices such as rituals and belief systems are often very misleading and, quite frankly, very dangerous. 
1906, the American Pierre Bernard founded the Tantric Order of America in New York, which placed sexual pleasures at the forefront in a culture that attracted wealthy financial followers. For many, this was their first introduction to Tantra. Allegations of hedonistic wild orgies and seductions of women, even charges of kidnapping, resulted in numerous investigations of Bernard and his ashram in New York. His students made Bernard exceedingly wealthy, and his clubs and ashrams were raided on multiple occasions. Bernard's impact on the West's misinterpretation and association of sex and wealth as being at the heart of Tantra can't be understated. In the 1960s, the counterculture movement of the Beat Generation embraced the perceived tantric sexual practices that were celebrated as a form of sexual liberation and freedom. The famous guru Rajneesh rose to prominence in India in the 1970s, moved to the U.S. in 1981, and after publication of his book Tantra, Spirituality, and Sex in 1983, was given the moniker Sex Guru. Rajneesh promoted a practice that indulged in hedonistic physical desires and embraced the exploration of physical urges. He supported capitalism and, like Bernard, was very wealthy, but eventually was investigated for multiple felonies, and the U.S. deported him back to India as a result of immigration fraud. He died in 1990. His ashram is in Pune, India, and he continues to have devotees and centers throughout the world that teach his interpretation of Tantra. Bernard and Rajneesh are only two examples of the many individuals who were tremendously responsible for delivering a recontextualized definition of Tantra to the West. Earlier I asked that you place an asterisk next to the statement that if the objectives of the sexual activity is only for pleasure, then it's just sex and not Tantra. Placing the focus or purpose of Tantra on transgressive or deviant sexual practices is a wholly modern and Western preoccupation that does not reflect the teaching and practices of Tantra with a lineage that dates to and throughout the Middle Ages. In the Tantra, sexual rights, again, are minimally mentioned and are not the focus of Tantric practices. I am glad that we finally cleared that up. So, remember, yoga is a living tradition that dates back into the historic timeline at least 2,500 years. Teachers of modern Tantra practices, particularly in the West, often have only a cursory knowledge of historical and complex Tantric practices and no understanding whatsoever of the original Tantric texts. In the absence of this divinely revealed knowledge, what often happens is that stories are invented and belief systems are manipulated. So you might be wondering, is it even possible for a Westerner to be fully Tantric? Well, it would be incredibly difficult. Why? Because it would require studying directly with a guru from the lineage who has a full understanding of Tantric manuscripts. That in itself is a rarity since the majority of manuscripts, as you know by this point in the podcast, have yet to be translated. So to be fully Tantric, the guru would have acquired detailed secretive knowledge that was passed from guru to guru through the centuries. You would need to be initiated by this guru into the tradition 
and study with a guru in person as opposed to simply reading the texts that a guru has published. The guru would also need to comprehend and speak the initiate's native language fully so as to clearly and with precision communicate the content of the manuscripts and the essential rituals to the initiate. A summary just won't do and would not be authentic. Mantras, as you've learned by now, require precision. The guru must also be well acquainted with the social and religious constructs that define the Western individual so as to teach effectively. To understand this more fully, think for a moment of an aviation mechanic or engineer in 2022 who has been trained to repair modern airplanes using computer technology. That same engineer may very well struggle when working on a 1936 Douglas DC-3 aircraft. Likewise, the mechanic who can rebuild a DC-3 and who has not received any training or education on computers may find a modern-day 747 to be akin to another language. What I'm trying to explain is that the tantric practices that embody the teachings of the original source texts need to be taught by a guru who is familiar with and understands the cultural and religious constructs of the individual whose goal is to transcend their essence or the ego. You can't be taught to fly modern-day commercial planes by someone whose sole relationship with a plane is seeing one fly. The guru needs to have an understanding, a learned perspective, if you will, of who you are, their student, at the very core. This takes enormous time and commitment. If someone who represents themselves as a guru asks you to pay money and submit a request to be initiated in an online forum that buys your initiation, run. Lineage is critical, and I'm not talking about translating one Sanskrit word for an English word, which even without the added tantric meaning is problematic. Ancient Sanskrit manuscripts are often quite cryptic and require a guru to unpack the meaning as they were intended when they were first written. Remember, the meanings were divinely revealed, so they are perfect in their context. The words you will recall are sacred. Deviation is simply not an option. When you are initiated, you must come to a deeper understanding of the darshana or philosophy of the cosmology found within sacred texts to fully embrace Tantra and orient your perspectives to that specific darshana. And as we've learned, there are numerous Tantric pathways with varying perspectives and definitions of spiritual liberation. The problems of misinformation are heightened when a neo-Tantra practice represents itself as following or embodying a classical Tantric ideology or cosmology when the teachings clearly are not classical Tantric. There is much to be said on this, as you can probably imagine, and warrants considerable thought and research. If at this point you're thinking that you want to find a tantric guru, doing so requires tremendous care. I encourage you to listen to my podcast episode on gurus before committing to any one particular guru. It can be very difficult to discern the difference between a tantric imposter and a true guru of tantra. Because of so much misinformation on the web, it's not uncommon for a teacher to believe they fully understand the inner workings of Tantra because they've read a few books and attended several workshops and retreats. If a guru claims they're part of a Tantric lineage that stretches into the Middle Ages, 
ask to see the texts or manuscripts that trace that lineage, and the line from guru to guru should be clear and traceable. Is the guru's goal and practice for the purpose of enjoyment and pleasures or liberation and moksha? Who's the central deity in the tantric rituals and rites? Again, do your research and make sure the tantric practices fully align with your goals. So how can you bring tantra into your yoga practice and why would you want to? Well, keep in mind that many non-tantric traditions integrate many tantric practices into yoga. Tantric practices support and motivate a rich and often intense interaction that combines both internal and external experiences with the modern world. At the core of Tantra is transformation. The end result in terms of your yoga practice is a higher state of self-realization. When your yoga teacher instructs you in a seated pranayama practice to form a hand mudra and repeat a mantra while breathing into a specific area of the body, such as a chakra, you are focusing prana shakti, and this practice is at the most basic foundation of Tantra. Pretty cool, right? Well, elements of Tantra can be seen across religions and philosophies and in our yoga practice. Again, Tantra sees the body as already divine and whole and perfect. Think of that perspective in our modern world, particularly in the West, where we scrutinize every wrinkle or gray hair. Perhaps in your next yoga class, celebrate what your body is capable of instead of what it can't do. Try to leave self-criticism at the door and connect your practice to your sense perceptions, relishing in the feel-good, think-beautiful moments. When you incorporate pranayama or breath practices or bandhas, mantras, mudras, chakras, and meditation from a tantric perspective, you are harnessing the power of shakti, which is the unifying energy of the universe. You've learned that mantras are at the heart of Tantra. A personal mantra can be given to you in secret by a guru or spiritual master from a Tantric lineage. My personal mantra was received by a guru from the Himalayan Institute that maintains a living Tantric lineage. Our personal mantras can then be used to focus upon redirecting Shakti, and mantras can be used outside yoga class in our day-to-day -day life. In and outside the yoga studio, be aware of your interconnection to everything, including those day-to-day -day ordinary or what might be deemed average moments of your life. Consider the meaning of planet over profit as a way to connect to our planet and keep our home healthy. Through Tantra, we can profoundly explore our full human potential by becoming more consciously aware of all that life and our world has to offer. And so I hope that I've lifted the veil of Tantra just a bit for you. Because of the subject's complex nature, perhaps we took a glance or a peek under the veil. I'm Brenda C. Epley, and as always, thank you for listening to the Yoga Discovery Podcast brought to you by Green Tree Yoga of PA and expanding upon your understanding of all things yoga. I love to receive questions or ideas for future yoga discovery podcasts or comments about any published podcast. Send them to me via email at greentreeyogaofpa at gmail.com. Learn more at green-tree-yoga.com. Until next time.